developed this very strange idea that we can come to God on our own terms. Actually, that might be putting it a little bit too kindly. What we really are saying as the one who's walking out of fellowship with God is we expect God to come to us on our terms. When the believer descends to that level, he, is, he or she is barely distinguishable from the non-believer. This is rebellion at its worst, and God says, no, I'm God and you're not. And the sooner you get that straight, the better you're going to be. How easy it is sometimes to forget the creature-creator motif, the creature-creator relationship. As creator, God has the absolute right to do whatever he chooses to do with his creation. The absolute right. He is the creator. He is bound only by the sum total of his infinite perfections. His sovereignty is not going to violate his love. His love is not going to violate his justice and so on. But God is sovereign. He has a right to do whatever he wants to with his creation, and he's never going to act inconsistently with who he is. That being said, he has the right to set the rules of engagement. We don't have that right. We need to humble ourselves as the creation and recognize that. We can only have fellowship with him on his terms and not our own. If there's any adjustment that needs to be made, it's we that need to make the adjustment, not God. He doesn't need to adjust to us. We need to adjust to him. In the first two and a half chapters of Malachi, we've seen that the Jews of Malachi today are not doing this. We've learned, first of all, though, that we must embrace the love of God if we're going to have a sustaining and fulfilling spiritual life. This is something that the Jews of Malachi's day absolutely refused to do. In their arrogant rebellion, they challenged Malachi and said, when Malachi asserted that God did indeed love them, and they said, oh, how does he love us? with their words dripping with arrogance and pride, how does he love us? Well, it's not just the Jews of Malachi's day. Christians do the same thing today. When we say things like, if God really loves me, then why did I lose my job? If God really loves me, then why is my child sick? If God really loves me, then why won't she marry me? Maybe God really loves you. That's why she won't marry you. But that's, that's a different thing. <laughs> I would ask you rhetorically, what is the greatest demonstration of love that has ever been given? Well, the cross, of course. For God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What more does he need to do than that? Really, what more could he do than that? When I memorized that verse a long time ago, I actually memorized it wrong. And a lot of us say it wrong sometimes. We say, for God demonstrated his own love toward us. That's not what the verse says. It actually says, for God demonstrates. The difference is present tense or past tense. It's a present tense demonstration. He continually demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Later in that same chapter, Paul also calls us God's enemies before we came to Christ. Now, what more does he really have to do? That's for us. To the Old Testament Jew, Malachi answers back, what more does he have to do? He already rescued your sorry tale out of Egypt. He's taken care of you. He made all these promises to your father, Jacob. What more does he have to do to demonstrate to you that he loves you? That's one thing that we've learned. We've also learned that if we're to approach God, it must be in accordance with his terms, not ours. We've seen this in relationship to three things. Priestly sloppiness, intermarriage with foreigners, and tonight we study 
everyone's favorite, the neglect of tithes. The idea of stewardship. Priestly sloppiness led to inadequate worship. Intermarriage with foreigners led to inadequate worship. They thought that they were going to be able to compartmentalize sin. I hope you'll recall that. They thought, well, I'll compartmentalize sin in this area, but I'm still going to worship God in a very full way. And God says, no. Tonight we move into a third area that they had a problem with, and that is the area of giving. Or perhaps it should be more appropriately termed stewardship. Stewardship involves the management of someone else's property. I want to say that perhaps with a little bit more stress on what really needs to be stressed. Stewardship involves the management of someone else's property. And who is the someone else for the Christian? The someone else is God. What we manage when we are stewards, we manage God's property, not our own. And I know that is counterintuitive for most of us because we say, I worked hard for that. I studied hard for that. And God says, I appreciate you doing that, but everything that you have belongs to me. A hundred percent of it. That's stewardship. When we talk about Christian giving, or even giving in the Old Testament sense, in the sense of giving the tithes, sometimes there's resistance because we think that we're giving something that's ours. But when we look at stewardship, by definition, by very definition, stewardship is the management of someone else's assets. Both Old Testament and New Testament both explicitly and implicitly say that the assets that we enjoy all belong to God. It's His. That should make stewardship a little bit more palatable when we recognize that whatever it is that we're writing a check for, all the money in that bank account belongs to God. Stewardship involves the management of another's property. It's technically not the management of one's own assets, although some use the term that way. By definition, it's the management of another's property. When the Bible approaches the subject of giving and or stewardship, whichever term you prefer, there is an implicit understanding that all of the assets that we are managing rightly belong to someone else with a capital S, and that someone else is God. If we will pause and look at it that way, the concept of giving looks altogether different. It's not really our money that we give. And again, I know that's counterintuitive, but to the degree that it's counterintuitive for you, that's the degree that you have a, that you have a spiritual problem. We're like spiritual two-year-olds. That's mine. Mine. And the parent comes and says, no, actually, it's not yours at all. It's mine. And takes it right away from you and gives it to someone else. Too often we act like spiritual two-year-olds. That's mine, and I'm not giving it. That's why in Malachi's day, Malachi's going to come down on the Jews really hard. When Malachi will say that the Jews did not bring their tithes to the storehouse, Malachi will use the terminology, they, they were robbing God. Why could he say they're robbing God? Because it's God's stuff in the first place. That's why he could say that they are robbing God. Today, we use the term tithe most consistently as a synonym for giving. I'm going to give my tithe. Technically speaking, 
A tithe is a tenth of the produce of the earth consecrated and set apart for special purposes. That's how the term is used biblically. A tenth of the produce of the earth consecrated and set aside for special purposes. The dedication of the tenth to God was recognized as a duty even before the Mosaic Law. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. Jacob vowed unto the Lord and said, O oh, all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give a tenth unto thee. We've talked about Jacob a lot on Sunday mornings and that he wasn't necessarily the spiritual giant that Abraham was or that David would be later, many other people. But he had this part right. Of all that thou shalt give to me, he recognized that everything that he had was coming from God. The first mosaic speaking on the subject is recorded in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 30 and 32. Subsequent regulations in the Mosaic Law designated exactly what the tithes should be. That's in a number of places, primarily in Numbers 18, Numbers 26 through 28, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 14. The paying of the tithes was an important part of Jewish religious worship. Now, we think, because the term tithe technically means 10%, we think sometimes that that was all there was in Israel. And a, lot of, a lot of New Testament Christians say, well, I'm going to do just like what the Bible prescribes, and I'm going to pay 10%. Well, Harold Honer, now deceased but former New Testament chair at Dallas Theological Seminary, pointed out that the tithe wasn't just 10%. It was somewhere between 10 and 30. There were three tithes. And every five to seven years or so, it could have gone up to 50%. Harold Honer's point was, if you're going to do an Old Testament system of giving, then look at the Old Testament and see what their system of giving was. It didn't, they didn't just stop at 10%. It could, on some years, go as high as 50%, but often went as high as 30%. It makes a bit of a difference, doesn't it, when we're trying to legalistically give back to God? In the days of Hezekiah, one of the first results of the reformation of their spiritual life was that they began to bring the tithe back. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verses 5 and 6. The neglect of giving of tithes was a major subject for two prophets. We're studying one of them, Malachi, but it was also a major subject in Amos' day. And isn't it interesting that Amos had this as a topic too? Because Amos was several hundred years before Malachi. Things hadn't changed. Amos was actually one of the first prophets. Malachi was the last of the prophets. In Amos's day, the biggest problem that Amos is dealing with is the disparity between the socioeconomic status of the very rich and the very poor in Israel. It wasn't that there was a disparity, but it was how the rich were treating the poor. The rich were getting wealthy on the backs of the poor by oppressing the poor. And God says, no, that's not how you get wealthy. If you get wealthy by honest means, then more power to you, God would say. But if you get wealthy by oppressing others, then there's not more power to you. In fact, archaeology has discovered homes of that era. And in that era, they have extremely large estates. And then sprinkled around those large estates were extremely small homes. Much like England in the times of, of Scotland and England, the time of William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. You had these, the landed aristocracy and everyone else was subservient to them. Even then... Those who had the financial resources weren't bringing their tithes into the storehouse for the purposes of worship. Both Amos and Amos chapter 4 verse 4 condemns this activity, and Malachi in our passage tonight condemns this activity. 
The New Testament mentions the concept of giving frequently, a lot. Mentions stewardship, a lot. But tithing itself, using that terminology, is only mentioned in the book of Hebrews, retrospectively there, mentioning, remembering Abraham's tithe to Melchizedek. And also, tithing is mentioned in the gospel, but in a negative sense. Oftentimes people would come and be bragging that they were tithing, and Jesus said, well, good for you, you know, something like that. In Malachi chapter 3, we left off last time in verse 5. Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 read this way. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? We've seen that this is the way that Malachi writes. It's a question and answer motif. Verses 6 and 7 of Malachi chapter 3. Even though the Jews had not been faithful, God would remain faithful to the covenant that he had made with Abraham and then renewed with Isaac and with Jacob. Because of the consistency of the character of God, verse 6 of chapter 3 says, there is going to be a future for Israel. I hope you see that. Some people like to assert, a lot of people like to assert, that because Israel was disobedient as a people, then the promises that were given to Abraham had been withdrawn and they've been given to the church. This passage and others say that that's not going to happen because God's faithful. He keeps his word. The people in Malachi's day weren't going to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Just like today, there are many Christians that are miserable. Some of you might be miserable here tonight. There are, many, there are many Christians, though, that are miserable. And the foundational reason why they're miserable, not just momentarily, but I'm talking about long term, is because they're not obedient to God. They're trying to live their life their way. They're trying to approach God in the way that they think God should be approached and not the way that God prescribed. So the same thing happens to us in our day. We can be saved but not enjoy the blessings of our salvation. They could be Jewish but not enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not an exact parallel, but it's close enough that I think we, it will help us to understand it. God is immutable. He's unchanging. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are passages that say that God changed his mind. What does that mean? That's not what this is talking about. He's immutable with regard to his essence, to his being. God will always be omniscient, all-knowing. He'll always be omnipotent, all-powerful. He'll always be omnipresent. He'll always be just. He'll always be righteous. He'll always be holy. That part of God doesn't change. He'll always be sovereign. That's why the Jews could count on a future in spite of the fact that they were being disobedient in the present. I hope you see that this is not an excuse for them to be disobedient. It's not a reason for them to be disobedient. Malachi is simply saying, listen, you guys right now are way out in left field. Have no fear. God's still faithful, even though you're not. There's a future for your people. Maybe you're not going to be part of that because you haven't followed the pattern of Father Abraham in faith, so you're not going to enjoy the blessing of it like you should have, but God is faithful. Then in verse 7, he relates how they might enjoy the covenant, how they might participate in the blessings of the covenant, and basically it is return to me. But they, in their arrogance and in their pride, respond just like they have before. How shall we return to you? You know what they're saying here? How can we return when we haven't left in the first place? 
You say, repent, repent of what? What have we done that we need to repent of? That's what they're saying. You say, confess. We say, confess what? What have I done that I need to confess? That's the attitude here. They haven't learned a thing in the first two and a half chapters of Malachi's prophecy. They're still in rebellion. They ask a question at the end of verse 7, how shall we return? And it's like Malachi is saying, glad you asked. I'll be happy to give you an illustration of how you might return. Then he lets them have it in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, God says. But you say, how have we robbed thee? Don't you just want to take these guys by the throat and throw them up against the wall? Maybe, maybe you don't. You're too nice to do that, I guess. But I want to take them by the throat and throw them up against the wall. All these questions, how have you loved me? How can we come back? How have we robbed you? Well, Malachi answers for God in tithes and in offerings. They were thieves of the worst kind, and that's robbing God. One of the websites I read from time to time is Drudge Report. Kind of gives you a synopsis of all the news that's that's news, and they update it many times per day. One of the things that I've seen in the last few weeks is that copper thieves are back. We had this several years ago when they stole our copper. They got, according to the police, about thirty-five dollars worth of worth of copper out here from these units. About thirty-five dollars worth of copper. They cost the insurance company and the church about twenty thousand dollars worth of damage. They're taking the whole unit from some places in Chicago right now. Just the whole unit. And even in Houston, the copper thieves are back. I thought that they had stopped that when they made people who were selling copper to these people who pay you in $2 bills. That's a big part of the problem. But they're making people at least show a driver's license when they come in and, and sell the copper. These, you know, Obviously, that's been ripped out of someplace. But I've often wondered, how could somebody do that? Most of them are people that need money for drugs. But the, one of the reasons that they'll do it it's because they have no conscience left. How could you steal from a church? Aren't you afraid to do that? I would be. I think I'd go down to the, somewhere else and steal from them, but to steal from a church? Why would I do that? Well, what's worse than stealing from a church? The church can be a good or bad entity, depending on the particular local church, but steal from God himself. That's what these people were doing. So what have you been doing wrong? Well, Malachi said, well, I'll let you know. And how could you return? Well, I'll let you know. You've done this wrong thing. It needs to stop. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 9 says, this is not just limited to a few of the people. This is all the people. This is in mass. This isn't just an isolated incident. There's a whole group of people that are robbing God. In chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, the Lord, Malachi speaking for the Lord, criticized the priests for the offering inferior quality sacrifice. The quality of the sacrifice was being criticized in chapter 1. Here, the quantity of the sacrifice is being rebuked. They got it both ways. It's very poor quality that they're bringing, and what they are bringing in enough to begin with. Malachi's coming down on them pretty hard. Then in verses 10 through 12, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you the blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, 
so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will the, your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This phrase, bring the tithes into the storehouse, is probably the most well-known, that and God hates divorce, the two most well-known phrases in the book of Malachi. And some people, especially in the church age, especially in the last several decades, have abused this in a way that they ought not to. And they equate wrongly the Old Testament temple with the modern church building. Today, we're all the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in each of us as we are a temple. Our bodies are a temple. That's why we have the responsibility to do the best we can with it, to keep it as healthy as we can keep it, and to do the best we can with whatever God gave us, because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says, therefore, glorify God in your body. But there is no direct parallel between the Old Testament temple building and the New Testament church building. What some people have done, and I would like to say well-meaning, but I'm not sure that I can say that because I don't know what their motivation is. They would say that the New Testament believer's responsibility is to give to the local church and to only the local church because of this passage. Because it says bring the tithes into the storehouse, right? And if the storehouse is the local church, you bring the money to the local church, the local church will disseminate it to missionaries or to seminaries or to Bible colleges or to whoever it may be disseminated to. You, you really can't get there from here. Now, that may be your philosophy, and that's fine, but you can't get there from here. It is legitimate. If you want to give to a missionary directly, then give to the missionary directly because the church here, as we discussed this morning, is a universal church. So you, while we could say that may or may not be true, people can argue for, about that, but they can't argue from this passage because of the parallel between the Old Testament temple and the New Testament church building. The parallel is not there, so we would want to avoid that. The principle, though, is that those who are good stewards typically are trusted by God with more over which they can exercise good stewardship. Again, look back at verse 10 and listen one more time. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Don't shortchange me so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. So challenge me if you like. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing till it overflows. You know what that is? It's rain. Rain in a dry land, and you need the appropriate amount of rain, not too much, not too little, for your crops. If you do what you're supposed to do, then God says, I'm going to bless you. Now, that's very Mosaic law-ish. Way back in Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people, listen, if you, God says, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. Right now, in Malachi's time, they're disobeying you. They're being cursed. And one of the best ways, one of the most efficient ways to curse a people in an agricultural economy is to withhold the rain. And it blows the whole economy to pieces. Test me. All he's saying is, listen, if you do the right thing, I'm going to bless you. Then I'll rebuke the devourer for you. The, the whole devourer is famine and, and pestilence. So that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. You're not going to lose your grapes. The nations are going to call you blessed. Just do the right thing. Just do the right thing and see what happens to you. Now, the way to put it is those who are good stewards typically are going to be given more over which they can exercise good stewardship. That's a principle that we learn in verses 10 through 12. Having said that, we must condemn with the strongest possible words 
those frauds who are on the airwaves and in pulpits who misappropriate verses 10 through 12 in the worst possible way and claim that if you give to their specific ministry, then God is going to enrich you. Not the principle that we should take from this passage. Again, the principle in this passage in an Old Testament setting, in an Old Testament context, goes back to Deuteronomy. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. At present time, they were being cursed. And God says, just test me. Try me if you like. You've already seen that the cursing part's going to work. Why don't you try obeying me for a change and see what happens? That is radically different from what I saw one night with my own eyes and heard with my own ears. This was back when I was in seminary. Actually, I couldn't sleep. I got up. We didn't have cable television, so it's one of the stations that you can get over the regular airwaves. And I see this guy. I wouldn't have believed it if someone else would have told me. It was so egregious. He is looking straight into the camera, speaking to people that are hurting, that have lost loved ones, that have cancer and lupus and MS and all kinds of terrible diseases. And he's looking right at them and saying, the reason you have that disease is because you have not been faithful in bringing your tithes to the storehouse. You have been unfaithful, and that's why you're sick. That's why you're out of work. That's why your wife left you, because you haven't brought the tithes into the storehouse. If you will right now send $100 into this ministry, I can guarantee you that the Lord will give you 1000 I talk to the TV sometimes when I'm watching football games or basketball games, talk to referees that can't hear me. What are you doing? That's a terrible thing. I woke the house up. What is it? Did you just hear that? Cindy came out and said, what's the matter? Dude, you should have heard this guy. She said, it's midnight. Go to sleep. <laughs> but you didn't hear what he said. This guy belongs in prison, not in a pulpit. He belongs in prison. That's fraud. You can't promise somebody. Give a hundred, you're going to get a thousand. I don't know what percent return that is, but it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot more than people are getting right now. We'll put it that way. You can't do that. That's not the appropriate application of this passage. What God is saying is, why don't you try obedience for a change? Back in the 60s, remember they said, give peace a chance? God's just saying, give obedience a chance and see where it gets you. Try obedience, my friends, and see what that does for your interpersonal relationships. Try obedience and see what that might do for your success in school or a success in business. That's all this passage is saying. It's not a promise of a whatever percent return it is to give a hundred and get back a thousand. It's not a promise of that. That's fraud and it needs to be condemned by every Bible-believing Christian in the strongest possible terms because these people are abusing people who can least afford to be abused. I know people who have fallen for stuff like this and gone and put it on their credit cards, have given money to ministries like this on their credit cards that their heirs ended up paying off. This is fraud, and it should be condemned, and in fact has been condemned, and certain aspects of our legal system have gone after some of these people. I don't feel the least bit sorry for them. They are not being persecuted because they're Christians. They're being persecuted because they're fraudsters. Now that I got that off my chest. Okay. 
This passage is used a lot for New Testament giving. Should it be used for New Testament giving? Does it have anything to do with the New Testament giving? Where does tithing fit into the Christian experience for the New Testament believer? Those are all decent questions. I want to answer it this way. There's a man who is retired, although I still think he teaches from time to time at Dallas Seminary by the name of Stan Toussaint. Stan Toussaint's remarkable. In terms of the ability to do exposition on a passage, for me, and, and who am I to, to judge them, but I think Dwight Pentecost and Stan Toussaint are, are one and one A, depending on whichever order you want to put in. He's just a phenomenal guy. Stan Toussaint was the associate, one of the associate pastors at Grace Bible Church in the early 60s when Dwight Pentecost was the pastor, and I believe Chuck Swindoll was one of the adult Sunday school leaders, and Harold Honer, who I mentioned a moment ago, chairman of the New Testament Department at Dallas, was also an adult Sunday school teacher. They had quite a staff there. But Stan Toussaint went on to teach at Dallas Seminary for a number of years, and one of the places that he ministered to in that time, as well as being a seminary professor, I believe was First Baptist Church of Richardson. He ministered several places, but that was one of the places he ministered. And I happened to be blessed to hear a sermon that he did at First Baptist Richardson on the subject of tithing. And I thought, this should be interesting, because denominationally, it would probably be our Baptist friends, and many of you are Baptists, so you could probably amen it, but don't. The subject of tithing comes up probably more often denominationally in that denomination than many others. So I thought this would be interesting to see what the pastor of First Baptist, of Richardson, would have to say about tithing. The chart that I'm going to show you, the reason I bring it up is I want to give credit where credit is due. I thought this was the best presentation on the issue of how tithing fits into the New Testament believer than anybody I have ever seen. So I'd like to share that with you now, if you'll allow me, before I show you Dr. Toussaint's chart, which I think will help tremendously in keeping all this in perspective, let me just quote one New Testament verse that we must be familiar with if we're to understand the difference between Old Testament giving and New Testament giving. The verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Most all of you know it. Let each one do just as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That passage comes right in the middle of Paul's dissertation on what it means to be a good steward in the New Testament sense. Let each one do just as he purposes in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, with that New Testament information in mind, let's look at what Dr. Toussaint had to say. He divides this up into three periods, the pre-Mosaic period, the Mosaic period, and the post-Mosaic period, or the church age. In the pre-Mosaic period, there is one example, well, two actually, but one primary example, Abraham, a minor example, and that's Jacob. Genesis chapter 14. And the passage is very short. It goes like this. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of God, most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God of most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who delivered you from your enemies into your hand. And then this phrase, it's almost like a throw-in line, but it's so significant. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. That really is the only information that we have about pre-Mosaic giving or tithing. So in the pre-Mosaic period, and by that I mean before the giving of the Mosaic law, tithing or giving in that sense, the giving of the 10% was voluntary, and the amount was 10%. You following now? Pre-Mosaic period. Example, Abraham. 
it was voluntary on Abraham's part, and the amount was 10%. Then we move to the Mosaic period. In the Mosaic period, it is not voluntary anymore. That amount is set in stone, if you will. It's set and it's compulsory. And the amount starts at 10%. Again, we said before there are actually three tithes. You could add up to 30% on any given year. And every several years, it was up to 50%. In the pre-Mosaic period, the Abrahamic period, tithing was voluntary and the amount was 10%. In the Mosaic period, it was compulsory, and the amount was 10%. In the church age, we've just seen, in one short passage, we'll study more later, that giving is voluntary. It's not compulsory. And the amount is left up to the giver. Now, this was the brilliance of Dr. Toussaint's message and how he framed it. And this is what he said. Let's look at this. There's only one variable here. In the pre-Mosaic period, giving is voluntary, but the amount, and that's what everybody wants to know, isn't it? How much do I need to give to be a good steward? The amount was, in the pre-Mosaic period, 10%. In the Mosaic period, it's compulsory, but the amount mentioned starts at 10%. And I need to stress that. Starts at 10%. In other words, 10% is the, is the basement. In the church age, Giving is voluntary, just like it was in the pre-Mosaic period, and we don't have an amount. Now, what Dr. Toussaint said, if 10% is the only amount that we've ever been given in the pre-Mosaic period or the Mosaic period, but in the church age, it says whatever you purpose in your own heart, what might be, just for grins, what might be a number that we might want to think about in our own spiritual life in terms of starting our giving? Well, Toussaint recommended maybe we should think about the only figure that's ever been given. And that's 10%. And again, that's a starting point. But again, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Let each one as he purposes in his own heart. Don't ever let anyone else, me or anybody else, set that number for you. All I can tell you is this. Based upon previous revelation, it might be smart in your thinking, and I just throw this out as a suggestion, if that's the only number that the Bible ever mentions, you might want to be careful picking your own that's a whole lot less than that. That's all I'm saying. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble by being legalistic about tithing, though. In the early days of our church, we had a, a man and a wife that were having a fight. And the fight was over money. And the husband came to me. And he said, I'd like for you to settle this argument with my wife. And I said, what's the argument about? And he said, it's about giving. And so I'm not sure I'm going to be able to settle that argument. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, you will. It's about tithing. It's about giving. I just want a biblical answer. This is what the question was. Sometimes we overthink these things way too much. And it's based on this passage right here in Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. If you do the right thing, you're going to be blessed. This particular man at that particular time was in debt. The specific debt that they had was they owed a plumber for work that had been done at their home. The man had done it on credit. The husband said, we can't pay the plumber because we need the tithe to the church. 
He came to me as the pastor of the church thinking that surely a pastor is going to be on his side because no pastor is ever going to turn down money, right? Well, not. <laughs> no, it wasn't right. The wife's sitting there saying, but wait a minute. The plumber did the work, and he's got kids too. He did the work. It's finished. I think we should pay the plumber, and we're not going to be able to give any money to the church this month. So they faced off, and they wanted me to give a judgment like Solomon. So I said, cut the plumber in half. <laughs> I did. You know what I said? Much to, the, much to the husband's dismay, I said, there's no choice here. Pay the plumber. You can't cheat him to give money to God thinking that God's then going to give you ten times that money and you can pay the plumber later. No, that's a scam. That plumber has bills to pay too. So now you're not going to pay the plumber. Now the plumber can't pay his bills and he can't give to his church. And the plumber didn't do anything wrong. He just provided a fair service for a fair price. Pay the plumber. That's what God is going to bless. He's not going to bless money that is an ill-gotten gain. That's not your money. You see the point? That's the plumber's money. Give it to the plumber and let him give it to the church if he wants to. But you've got to pay him. Now, what I said was, now you guys need to sit down, get your household in order so that this doesn't happen again. And then once it's in order, then you need to set aside, come, husband and wife, come together prayerfully and decide what percentage we want to give. And whatever you do, take it off the top. If you wait for the leftovers, there's not usually going to be any leftover. You need to decide ahead of time. This is what we're going to do. And do it. And by the way, it does have a happy ending. They did it. At least as far as I remember, they got everything worked out in the way that it needed to be worked out. But they had, you got to do it in the right way. And you say, well, that's a plumber, but I owe a lot of money to MasterCard and Visa. And that's just a bank somewhere. Listen, you can't give the church MasterCard and Visa's money either. If you've already spent it, it's not yours anymore. Now, you may never hear a pastor say this again, so listen very carefully. Mark the date down. <laughs> You can't give someone else's money and expect God to bless it. So no, there's so many ways people like to try to abuse this path. So many gimmicks they want to try to get God on it. And I knew the guy was well-meaning. Let's not pay the plumber. Let's give it to the church. God's going to multiply it ten times, and then we'll have plenty of money to pay plumber and everybody else. No, uh, 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 uh. God doesn't work that way. So I want to stress, based upon this chart up here, I am not preaching today that you need to give 10% of your money. Not doing it. This is an Old Testament passage. New Testament has a question mark here. It's up to you. The Holy Spirit's going to let you know what it is you need to give. But two saints' point was, maybe, maybe you ought to consider that figure, but that's between you and the Lord. This is the one figure that we need. There is one percentage and only one percentage that I want to leave you with today that I want you to have burned into your soul that you never forget. That one percentage is this, 100%. Because 100% of each of our assets belong to God and not us. That's the percentage that we need to leave here. We're not 10 or not 10 or 15 or 20. Dr. Pentecost, who I mentioned a moment ago, used to say, it's not how much you're going to give God. It's how much of God's money you decide you're going to keep. This is the number that we need to remember. Then giving becomes so much easier. But it's God's money to begin with. To give a small amount back to him for his works is not an inappropriate thing at all. 
It's just a recognition of divine ownership and then a, then a careful consideration of how we might, as a family, as a couple, or even as an individual, how we might properly handle someone else's assets. 